0: Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Amy Smilovic, the founder and creative director of the fashion brand Tibi, which has remained privately owned by Amy and her husband for the past 27 years. Since the start of the pandemic, we've been seeing more of Amy as she's been taking to social media to host regular style classes and to communicate Tibi's design philosophy of creative pragmatism. She's also written the book on the concept. I wanted to ask Amy about the impact of newly leading with creative pragmatism across Tibby's branding and business decisions. I also want to ask about her plans for New York Fashion Week Fall 2024 and why participation in the event still matters. Welcome, Amy. Hi. Hi. Creative pragmatism. Apparently, it's a mouthful for me to say, (laughs) but (laughs) tell me about the concept. Has this always been central to what Tibby does? And maybe more recently, you put a name around that.
1: I don't think it's always been central to what Tibby does, but I think it's always been central to who I am. And it wasn't until post-pandemic that we really doubled down on taking a stand of who we are, who I am, and bringing that to the forefront just to, you know, just to lead us, just to narrow the focus, just to be clear about who we are.
0: How do you describe it to those who aren't familiar?
1: It's really a, a mindset and its it describes a group of individuals who view themselves as highly creative, but also very pragmatic at the same time. And sometimes they're more creative than pragmatic and sometimes more pragmatic than creative, but it really drives home on the notion that People are multifaceted individuals. We can be more than one thing at once. And I think we're in an industry that has been quite notorious in labeling people as either sexy or edgy or super feminine. And I think any of us would agree that we are a lot more than just one of those adjectives would imply.
0: Or you're a clean girl or you're a mob wife. <laughs> exactly. Mob wife. Right. Oh, it's wild. That's interesting. So it definitely describes your approach, how you dress, how you do business, probably a lot of your customers. As time has gone by, and um, this has become, it's defined, it's come to define you and your approach. It's come to define the brand more, would you say? I think so, because people understand
1: what it is that we stand for. And I think before when you were very limited by a single adjective, then the minute that you did something that wasn't within that adjective, it was very confusing. If you were labeled a print brand, but you were in the mood for a charcoal gray sweaters, people didn't understand how to blend those two concepts. And so it allowed me to really explain my point of view, not so that I can convince other people of it, but so that what happens often is they start nodding and they're like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like why? That makes so much sense. Of course, you can love prints and love a big gray cashmere sweater at the same time. And it doesn't mean that you've lost
0: your mind and that you don't
1: know who you are.
0: Absolutely. And this was communicated. I remember this um, at a time, tell me if I'm wrong, when everybody started doing Instagram lives. And for most everyone else, After people went back to work and got out of their home or um, the novelty wore off of what this is, like getting on social and doing something live, um, people stopped doing it. You continued to do these amazing style classes. Um, Tell me about the following and the engagement you've seen and why that has held on.
1: The engagement has been incredible, and I think that it has held on primarily because we are actually engaged. So I don't think you can do live and then hope that your marketing efforts um, continue that conversation on forward. Like the people who are doing live are actually the ones then going on and having the continued conversation. And the conversations have turned out to be almost about anything but style, but at the end of the day, tend to be very much about personal style And I think that revelation for a lot of individuals to know that caring about the way that they're presenting themselves is not uh, frivolous. And in fact, it's really, uh, it's super empowering, makes people feel great in so many aspects of their life beyond just what they considered fashion as wearing something that their friends would say was cute or pretty, or their husband would say was fabulous on them.
0: Yes. Well, I love that you also personally do like an outfit of the day. It's like, this is creative pragmatism, like brought to life, living and breathing. This is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about, first of all, your comfort level. Have, I don't know if you've always been out there like you are now. and um I want to say, like, I see you as a style icon, but I don't want to embarrass you. But um, yeah, people are just like the style classes. They're taking to that. Tell me about the importance of doing that personally.
1: Well, I think that, first of all, the comfort level thing, when I was uncomfortable even coming out at the end of the runway shows in the past, pre-COVID, it wasn't necessarily because I'm a shy person. It was more that... I felt like I was taking credit for something that was just such a culmination of so many different uh, people's, you know, uh, just a huge swath of our company had contributed to all the work that went out on the runway show. And I felt very fraudulent coming out and doing the wave by myself. And it wasn't until style class and where I really found my voice and what I was contributing to the customer Um, it just gave me more confidence to come out and be like, I own this. I've got this. This is my vocabulary. These are my words. And I think it just became more comfortable with me owning my message rather than anything about being shy and then all of a sudden not being shy.
0: And what inspired you to write the book on the concept?
1: You're an author now. (laughs) I, I think that... You know, practically speaking, it was one thing where people were DMing me and they said, I've been taking screenshots of all your Instagrams and we're going to write the freaking book for you if you don't, because we need a place where this concept can be laid out in a way that is logical and can really take people through it from beginning to middle to end. And so the book was very cathartic for me in that way because it helped me organize my thoughts even more. And it let me um, link everything to the visuals and really kind of memorialized everything in one place, which was, uh, it turned out to be a really, you know, it turned out to be a good decision for the group for us to have done this. Yes, it's getting great
0: feedback. I need to see it. It's been out about a year now.
1: (laughs) Um, It's it's been out a year, but we're sold out. And we really did this as a one and only item. Um, The book was all produced in Italy and bound there, and it's in a beautiful shell and everything. So I'll see what the next iteration looks like. But this first book is kind of meant to be like if you bought it, you got something really special that is
0: like not just a first edition, but like the edition. Oh my God. I will be stalking <laughs> eBay or whatever. Regularly. <laughs> Somebody sell it. Yeah. Um, definitely. Let's circle back. We can just keep it light. We can touch on it because I definitely want to hone zero in on what's happening now. But 27 years ago, different retail landscape, Totally, uh, wholesale is where it's at. Talk to me about that. And, um, god when the evolution the pivot direct sales matter all the things
1: well i mean 27 years ago i started the line in hong kong and i started it with four styles and i would say that it was very focused and what i was in the mood for at the time and it was a lot of brighter colors and prints uh, but in clean minimalist styles and it was when Gucci had introduced with Tom Ford that whole Lily Pullet survived out collection. And, you know, that was the moment. So I think that's where I just have had a constant conflict for the first, you know, 20 years of my business because what started out as a desire for a moment in time, you know, became what I became known for because that was my first thing out of the gate. I couldn't say, oh, I was doing these great prints, but my closet's filled with Helmut Lang and Margiela. So, you know, I I did these prints. They, They really sold. People wanted more of the prints. I did not have a background in design. My background was in marketing and business. And I treated it very much as a marketing business. I treated my customers who were the stores as a focus group. And I think what I did not, what I would, certainly have changed if I could, you know, take a little car and go back in time was that I didn't know enough about what I was standing for as a brand. So I didn't know enough to hold my ground when others were suggesting different things. And, you know, of course, there's a Henry Ford quote, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. And (laughs) I think that the stores are going to always ask you for more of what they're selling right now, regardless if that has anything to do with your brand or not. So I really um, flowed for a long time on the whims of the different stores that I was selling to. And it was around uh, 2011, 2012, that I just felt like enough already I I can't with all these prints I I don't want to be labeled this bright colored printed brand and so that's when I did a big swipe at my brand cleaning it up I had called in Elin Kling who had just kind of become an influencer and was really first one of the very first early on influencers and Elin came over from Sweden and she helped style uh my runway collection where we really kind of announced ourselves as a clean, minimal brand. But back then I didn't have the guts to take it all the way. Like where the runway looked one way and then back in the showroom, I was like, all right, fine. You won't buy the clean stuff. I'll still sell you the prints. And, um, and so, you know, each time you get more and more emboldened to, to ultimately become what you should become. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes moments in time force your hand, whether or not you realize how good it is at the moment that it happens. And COVID absolutely forced our hand to really shrink up and have a very narrow and tight focus and become, you know, it, it allowed us to become the brand that we are today.
0: Where would you say um, the streamlining in terms of the the product mostly happened? Where Where could you maybe trim some fat or trim trim out what wasn't what you wanted to focus on moving forward?
1: What COVID did is it, it, it forced me to think about a business plan in a totally different way. So I think, you know, in the past or right now, currently, if you think about writing a business plan, you know, you have one plan that's like, oh, we want to achieve, you know, 200 million in sales. We want 30 stores, but, you know, whatever it is. And then People separately tend to write a life plan. I want to be really healthy. I want to have a great relationship with my spouse, that kind of stuff, with my kids. And COVID just made it so clear that there was no bifurcation of business and my life. My life was my business because I really do, or I should be loving what I'm doing. And so my husband and I sat down and we were like, what do we really want in life and we decided that we really like independence that that is so critical that we show up every day in a world where we are making our own decisions that we will either, you know, live or die by we decided that we want to enjoy our life and enjoying our life meant that if we're traveling, we're going to good places. And if we're traveling with our team, it means that we're eating in good places. It doesn't mean that I'm eating in you know, some kind of shithole to save money while I'm with the team and then eating nice later on. Like I'm eating in the shit place. And like if I'm having my life, I just want to enjoy all the moments of it. So it meant that just really releasing ourselves of how much do we have to scrimp and save on TNE and everything when I'm the one out doing the TNE and I want to enjoy my life. Um, and then the third thing was being very forthright about making sure that the people that we surround ourselves with are people who share our mindset and that they are good people who assume positive intent and are really rabidly curious and competitive with themselves, first and foremost. And that means that they have a work ethic that is through the roof, but that that work ethic is because they would accept no less for themselves. And so we realized that if we have these three things, these incredible people around us, and we recognize that every day is our life to be lived and we have this independence, that we're going to be incredibly happy. And so it, it changed anything then that you would think about in terms of business goals, like We certainly realized that to be a hundred million dollar brand would unravel all of that. There's no way I could really know all the employees' names and enjoy being around them and not, you know, not do it without outside investors, for instance. Um, So it really uh, kept everything in focus. How could I enjoy my life if we had? you know, 3,000 SKUs a year. I can't. We would run ourselves crazy. And how could I know everyone's name if we had more than 50 employees? So every single thing that we do now is benchmarked against this life business plan rather than, you know, this bifurcated plan. Um, And so the shedding became very easy. I didn't have to worry about selling to tons of customers because we weren't going after a hundred or $300 million business. Um... So if we were going to be selling to just a very finite, or not a finite, but a specific group of customers, then it required a specific style of clothing. And it was really freeing to not have to be, not everything to everyone, because I don't think brands go that far, but it was very freeing to not have to be a lot of things to a lot of different people. And we we regularly tell people now, you know, I've had customers who will write to me and they're like, I'm very upset that you're not doing this and that. And if you wanted more business, you would do this or that. And I'm like, thank you. I, you know, I don't have to tell them like buy, but buy. And we do the same thing with stores. And we are very um, clear about who we will or will not do business with at this point. And I mean, the, the pressure that that takes off of our salespeople and everything is just amazing to know that they can really go so all out for people that we, who share our mindset, and that
0: when they don't, we don't have to care that much. I'm so inspired by things you're saying. <laughs> we you. are. I've I've said I was a guest on a podcast and I was basically talking about work. As life, like work, is my life. But like you said, you enjoy it. I also have recently said, like my theme for the year is hashtag. It's like Christopher Kane, more joy. Because if this is like your life and it's what you love, like find, I don't know, make it even more. I, th- I think that joyful. They,
1: I guess I think that one of the problems that um, I see is that I don't think people are setting reasonable expectations. And, you know, when someone is just constantly in your face on TikTok or wherever, and they're like, you draw the line with your boss and you like shut it down at blah, blah. Like, okay, but the reality is that you, this may not even be at all about your boss. You're, you're going after the wrong problem for a lot of people who are very passionate and care about what they do you know, I'm sorry, like when I was bagging groceries at Kroger, when I was waitressing, and when I was working at American Express, I stayed up late at night in bed thinking about how to do it better, and or how to do it in a more interesting way. And it was freaking, you know, groceries. And so if you are a certain type of person, you're not going to be able to turn it off. So where you find joy might need to be in going out and making sure that you're getting the right amount of exercise or that you're surrounding yourselves with people who are actually more interesting and challenging yourself. But, you know, it may not be your boss who's putting the pressure on you. You might be putting it on yourself. And so redirect that. And put it in a more
0: positive way. Absolutely. You talked about the great people, the importance of great people, people who are of the same mindset, um, work ethic, all the things around you. I mean, is it just about time? It takes time to get to the team that you've established now. Is there, are there secrets to finding these people that you've found, maybe recommendations or other?
1: I mean, listen, for us, it's been a lot of trial and error, but we know that one of the most detrimental things with an employee is um, if they do not have a high comfort level with discourse. And I think really being able to lean in and engage in a way that really helps problem solve, get to the bottom of things. You don't need everything served up in a nice sandwich, but you also absolutely have to be respectful because, you know, that's that's who we are. Um, but you have to be comfortable saying the uncomfortable. And, you know, when you're in a small business, you can't hide. And so if you are not comfortable getting to the bottom of things, then you'll just waller in problems. And and you're not going to move forward. And so um, someone who is really comfortable, challenging, asking questions, um, and not taking things personally and not taking things personally because you have an ability to assume positive intent, those are the people that we want around us. And so we do look out for key things. You know, when someone comes in and if the first thing they want to tell us is how all their family members and their friends are for shit, well, okay, the odds that they're going to come here and, you know, if if this individual really has a problem with every other person in their life... That they're not going to like me. That is for sure. And big red flag. <laughs> big red flag. Um, and so, you know, and, and to be honest, some people come in and they say things that they think are the right things to say. And, um and then when you, when you say things, you know, when, you know, I've had people come in and right away they're like, I'm so pumped to be working in like a real girl power environment. And I'm like, well, okay, well, I hope you're comfortable that, you know, 30% of our company here is men. Like, do you, you do you have a problem working with men? And they're like, fuck, I just thought that was the right thing to say. And I'm like, it's not, you know, we, <laughs> right everyone here is great. Like they're all individuals and they've been chosen based on their, uh, their ability to contribute. So, um, so yeah, you gotta, the interviewing process can be long and laborious sometimes, but it pays off if you can get those right people in.
0: We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Well, let's touch on a core focus of the moment is this fashion show that's happening. Uh, tell me, you tell me runway show presentation. <laughs> I'm not sure, but, um, early February mm-hmm. and also, um, Talking about something that you just mentioned, um, kind of uh, your customer now and how they approach their wardrobe. I think the last time that we spoke was backstage at your last fashion show, and you were talking about different um, styles, basically wardrobe builders. Like You don't have to start your wardrobe from scratch because it's a new season. This can pair with this from past seasons. Um, Anyway tell me about fall 2024 in terms of what you can share in terms of the show and in terms of the the styles that we're going to see. I would think that won't be a far departure from what we talked about.
1: Um, No, it's not because it's all in evolution. And I think that fall is probably um, a little bit bolder and stronger right now because I think we feel more emboldened and stronger. And I think now more than ever is not a I don't, I definitely don't feel like I want to curl up and hide on my couch. And I think that it is, um, so we're going to find ways to tell that story so that people, you know, can really show up the way that they want to show up right now. As always, it's always, everything is created through the lens of past, present and future because people being able to be um, contiguous in their wardrobe is so critical. I really, you know, to, to think that you can buy your way into sustainability is just ridiculous. And I think you have to have less in your closet. You have to be willing to um, own less. You've got to curb the need to purchase so much. And so to me, that is a reality. And if that's a reality, then I want to make sure that every single thing that you're purchasing has meaning and that it can be used a lot, and that you'll feel really good about it. And if you ultimately don't feel so good about it, that you'll be able to pass it on to someone who will. Yes.
0: What do you make of the Sarah and my team made me promise to ask you about the barrel jeans phenomenon? And because I've – did that just so happen to – it probably sparked the trend, but it did prove to be a trendy item. Um, Tell me about (laughs) – whether you build on that, how you, uh, how you treat that?
1: Well, I think that to me, the trend is more of uh, denim as a designer piece. And like, of course that's, you know, been around since the seventies, right? That denim all of a sudden became like a designer piece. But I think that the way that it was interpreted in the seventies needs a refresh to fit more with the, um, expectations that we have for kind of a, you know, a chill and more modern vibe. So that barrel jean was more of us just finding a way to really have a high level of modernity when you are still we- wearing denim at the end of the day. And so I don't think there's a moment in time right now that I can imagine waking up and thinking that I would like to go out in denim and not be modern and not be cool, So I think that that jean is something that is just more of a classic that will work its way into people's wardrobe. And it has a huge amount of broad appeal to it. And I think when we designed it, we didn't realize the large range of people that would find comfort and style in it in their own way. And that was um, really exciting to see.
0: It's so exciting. Tell me about your distribution now. I'm seeing that you have a store, which I actually didn't know about, that's in Simons Island, Georgia. How long has that been around in your other stores, New York, direct versus wholesale versus stores, I guess, direct meaning e-commerce?
1: So our business now, it's probably around 60% uh, direct-to-consumer, and meaning on, online and our own retail stores. Uh, we do have two stores. The one on St. Simon's has been there the longest. And that was like literally when you had the mom and dad who I sent the first shipments to. And then mom is selling stuff out of the back of a car, the garage, and then a garage that we got her that had no electricity. And then ultimately now is a... Um, Really nice, you know, twenty thousand square foot uh, warehouse uh, on the mainland, and then we kept the the store there because it's in a it's in a beautiful island, and um, we love that store. And we then we've oh, got great. this, and then we've got the flagship in Soho that's been there now for I think seventeen years in that one location at one twenty Wooster Street, which I think is unheard of for a retailer to stay in a location that long. But it's our home, and we love it. And so we are a two-store company.
0: Amazing. Is that, that will suffice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we do,
1: we have been doing, um, I mean, the last year we've been doing events where we'll go to LA, for example, we'll do this again in the springtime where we do a stylist house and we invite customers out there for private appointments. We did it in Toronto. We've done it in Paris. We did it in London. Um, And I think we'll expand upon that this year as our stylist team keeps growing as well.
0: How do you approach or how do you think about, talk about growth? Um, You talked about, you know, maybe it's not a hundred, certain hundred million dollar in revenue as a goal, but um, I've noticed some kind of um, inching or launching into new categories, potentially new international markets. Um, Is it just Thoughtful expansion, and I don't know how. How do you treat it? How do you talk about it?
1: Well, one of the ways that we see growth is really just in terms of maintenance. I mean, we are in a very sweet spot right now, and I want to keep growing it. But we want to be able to we want to be able to grow um, vertical and not horizontally. And so, before we were always in horizontal growth. Every time you grew, you it meant adding new stores, new locations new retailers and adding more employees. And so right now, the goal is to be able to grow with the base that we already have. And so that our employees don't constantly seeing us have to add expense from additional employees, but actually being able to see their positions, their roles grow uh, financially. So in order to do that, though, what we're finding is that with a lot of our customers, we can't we can't talk out of both sides of our mouth. So I can't say to our customers, "I want you to buy less and I want you to buy smart and please buy all this stuff." right? So the what we found, though, is that with customers who have got closets very um, heavily assorted with tibby, I don't want to try and create the new perfect navy blue blazer for them if the navy blue blazer that I did two years ago is absolutely perfect in my eyes. Now, I still would like them to be able to buy from Tibby, but it's not by buying more of the same. So maybe is it a beautiful cashmere throw for their couch? And maybe it's a beautiful cashmere throw, but it doesn't mean that I have to do the pillows and the rug to accompany it. It's just the specific item that I can do that they will want from us that will not uh, have us spreading ourselves too thin. So I am looking at other categories that make sense and that are uh, turnkey, but anything but basic or average that really have our point of view to it. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we do cashmere scarves. Why am I not doing size ones that should be thrown at the end of your couch? And if you, you know, in that way, if you are the customer that does own three of our blazers, I'm not asking you to buy a fourth. And I'm not compromising our design in order to make it so different
0: so you feel like you have to buy it.
1: Just buy the throw.
0: Yes. You guys have your fun. I swear. I don't know when this was. It was in your store and you had It was almost like a range of mm, unexpected items that were a little bit on the more affordable side compared to a ready-to-wear item. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just know that there – I know because it lives on in my mind like a legend that there was a pair of shoulder pads. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
1: I need to do those again. Yeah. Yeah. Those were
0: good. You reminded me of my mom in the 80s. She used to clamp them onto her bra.
1: (laughs) Yeah. We did them in cool, like we covered them in men's shirting and everything. And, uh, you know, they transformed a t shirt. They,
0: you know, it gave you options. I'm big into options. It's so brilliant. Well, you mentioned, I think that you birthed the brand in, do you say Hong Kong? I think it was a New York brand. No. um, Is it necessary? How, yes tell me about like where your employees are is it necessary that everybody's at the office when everybody's all spread out throughout the world these days
1: I think that it is very necessary that the employees are at the office but I think that the stylists have potential to be located in very far-flung areas but what we have found is that within our own office um, you could, you could go for a while with a team, really half in, half out. Um, but we found more and more that people are missing out when they're not in the office. There was this episode that I always loved in Friends, the TV show Friends, where Rachel got a job at Ralph Lauren, and there was a her boss was a smoker, and every time her and her colleague smoked, and every time they would go out for a smoking break. They would come back and they'd be like, oh, my God, the merchandising plan, done, dusted. And she was like, shit. So then she tried to take up smoking so that she could, like, be outside with them as they were coming up with things. And now I think that, you know, if there are days, you know, if someone's working from home, they become like Rachel and friends. You know, they're (laughs) like, wait, why didn't you guys stop and call me? And I'm like, ah, because that was a buzzkill. You know, we, we had a really good idea and we wanted to bring it all the way through. Um, so in our, in our office, we do do, um, you know, we do some Fridays at home, uh, now that we're pounding it Monday through Thursday, sometimes Friday is a good place to really stop, organize your thoughts and get all that paperwork and writing done. But we're an an office crew by and large.
0: I was wondering, we are speaking the same language, Amy. I was wondering where you were going with friends. I thought you were going to talk about when she got a job at Saks and she says the mothership is calling her home. Okay. (laughs) All right, focus. Um, but what would you say is the largest, I mean, weighing on your mind, keeping up at night? Is there something that's challenging you now? I think
1: the thing that is challenging me right now is just anything that's not in my control. And I think that we are seeing a lot of these bigger uh, online retailers really trying to figure out what their future looks like. And Every day, I'm so grateful that we are not working with any of the department stores uh, in the United States. Um, I think they've been, a, you know, a victim to a lot of things, uh, it's a lot of it self-inflicted. But these bigger online retailers, there is seems to be um, a reckoning coming and, you know, it some of them we do business with, and I, I hope that they can figure out what the right business model is for them going forward.
0: Yes. I didn't realize you weren't in any of the North American department stores. Tell me about like where you feel safe, uh, What what makes for a comfortable partner right now? What makes
1: for a comfortable partner is a store that has a point of view and that the store owner is heavily vested in their business. So, I think someone like um you know I would use Max in Denver, Colorado. Max absolutely knows who his customer is. He has a point of view, and he is in the store all the time. He knows what product he has when he is buying designs he's thinking, you know is this tibby gonna work with this leve shoe that I just bought? Can I put it next to this row sweater he's he's building a wardrobe in his mind and you have to be present. These, these stores cannot just dial this in. And so um, those are stores that really work well for us, but it's a two-way street. I mean, if we're not performing for him, the onus is upon us to, you know, I have to get on Instagram. I have to really start telling people you got to go to Max and this is why, and this is what he has. And so um, it's a very symbiotic relationship and we're down for that but you have to be a store that is willing to be a receiving host in order to have a symbiotic relationship. I think I'm using my biology correctly here, but, um, (laughs) and you know, other partners aren't down for that. And so, you know, Mohawk general store and, um, Boyd's in Philadelphia and, uh, you know, that our favorite store in Vancouver, Boboli and, and, and then you've got a big store like Printom in Paris, who is able to work in a very unique way. I mean, when I go onto the floor at Printom on the second floor, the salespeople there know me, they recognize me because they watch the IG lives. And, and so they're vested
0: in our business and it makes a huge difference. It really does on that note of what's like a traditional versus non-traditional when it comes to like what's worth worthy of your marketing dollars uh, where are you marketing these days well, outside of your own <laughs> social presence my goodness
1: i think that um it's it's a lot of internal marketing it's doing um, we have we have things that i think would hard, be difficult for someone else to come in and understand like What the ROI is immediately, but we know what the long tail is. And we've, like, we have a summit coming up on Sea Island, Georgia this spring that is going to be with about eight of our C suite executives that have become our best customers who we talk with regularly, who I met through my DMs. Um, And so it's things like solidifying relationships that might help us think better about our businesses long-term. It's about turning our runway shows into opportunities to really engage directly with our customers. It's about traveling to Milan and doing events at Walk Store there. And, you know, it's, it's just understanding. I, I guess what it is, is for our business, it's not about focusing on selling more clothing. It's understanding that by getting people to value what personal style brings to you and getting people to really believe in what a small business stands for, any marketing that we do that furthers those two efforts, the rest will come. I don't have to worry about it. This is not about buying paid Google ads. The rest will come and the thing is, as a small business who is very pragmatic about what we want to do in terms of our sales and growth, we don't have to do that much business in order to be satisfied. I don't have a beast to feed here. This is not a polarized environment where people have to work their ass off so that I can feed a beast of, you know, guys wearing blue vests, sitting in Greenwich, Connecticut, pontificating about, you know, shareholder value. This is this is not our game that we are
0: in. So there, yeah. Right on. You tell it. (laughs) (laughs) Girl power. Just kidding. It's not a girl power environment. (laughs) Um, Exactly. Yes. um, And at the show, uh, I I think that we talked about, like, there's been a varied high level, various high levels of uh, customers, like a high percentage of the audience has been at your shows. Is that going to happen again in February? Like, there will be customers filling the seats.
1: So what we're doing is a kind of showing event. it's It's not fair to call it gallery presentation or a show. So it's a thing in February. and we are clearing out our store at 120 Wooster to do it. It will involve some of our customers and then our of course, our buyers and our wonderful people in the press. And then in the for the spring collection in September, we are having way too much success with the current model of what we've been doing so i imagine we will double down on that unless you know unless there's something dramatic happening in the world which i mean that's happens lately more than ever so we'll see
0: we shall see amy this is so enjoyable. I was so looking forward to it. And it like, I don't know, it over, it, it over exceeded my, my ex- expectations. Is Good. that a word? Exceeded. Exceeded. Yeah. Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for being here. And we will all study up, read the book on creative pragmatism, or just read the notes that are online because you can't get it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you for, yes. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Take care. Bye. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.